That was wonderful. Before the sermon and before we pray, I want to read Psalm 113 for us this morning. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. We are gathered here this morning to praise the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Lord, for gathering your people here this morning. Lord, to fellowship, Lord, in one accord and in unity. Lord, to praise you, to praise your name. Lord, to praise who you are, to praise what you've done, to praise what you're doing. And Lord, to praise what you will do. Father, we are not worthy to be here. But Lord, by your Son's blood, you have made us worthy. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for loving for us. And now thank you for abiding in us, Lord, so that we may have life. Lord, may you be exalted this morning. Lord, may the sermon not be, not be about me. Lord, or the focus or the attention be on me. Lord, may it be on you. Lord, use me as a mere signpost pointing to you. Lord, as a channel of your glorious grace. Lord, may my words be your words. And Lord, may you soften hearts and humble hearts to hear and to receive your truth this morning. Lord, my prayer is that every single one of us here this morning, no matter what motivation you use to bring us here to church this morning, Lord, I pray that we would leave here desiring more of you, yearning for more of you desperately seeking you more. For Lord, we need you. Reveal to us how much more we need you. Lord, be exalted. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, we are going to pick up where Pastor Mark left us last week, which is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to be opened to Colossians. I'll jump to some other text this morning that should be on the screen. But if you have your Bible in Colossians, it'll be easier to follow along. Keep in mind that this chunk of text that we are covering now, mainly chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, are vital for us in understanding who we are in Christ and what he has accomplished for us on the cross and what he is still doing in us today. The meaning of this chunk of text is our motivation and our means to stay grounded in Christ so that we can avoid false teaching, like chapter 2 talks about, and false living, like chapters 3 and 4 discuss. Why and how? Because these verses in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, reveal to us the reality of our lives if we have truly been regenerated, which which is that we have been circumcised and baptized in Christ, like Mark talked about last week, that that we have been forgiven of all of our trespasses, that we are no longer bound by the Mosaic law, that we have assurance of eternal life through Christ's resurrection, and that Jesus now lives in us. And if all of that is true, then Paul says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, If you have been raised up with Christ, meaning everything that we just covered, if you've been circumcised in Christ and baptized in Christ, and if the fullness of deity that dwelled bodily in him now dwells in you, if you've been forgiven of your trespasses, if you've been regenerated and been given a new heart and his spirit is in you, that means that you have been raised up with Christ. If that is true, Paul says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, 
meaning that you already are seeking, because he says keep seeking, and that we then must continue to seek Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Church, we must make this our desire. We must be desiring the heavenly things, the, the, the kingdom. We must be kingdom-minded. We must seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And if this is our desire, then we should be able to look at one another in the body of Christ and think, man, he or she loves Jesus. His focus is Jesus. His focus is on building the kingdom. It's not on us and our selfish wants and our desires. We're not going to live for ourselves and for earthly things. We're going to be seeking Christ and His kingdom. That's what Paul says. We must set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. So then, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Guys, this is no longer our life. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Christ is your life. If you have been regenerated, Christ is your life. This life is His. He gets, deter he gets to determine how we are to live. That's the point. We come here on Sunday mornings to worship Him, to praise Him, and to be exhorted in how to live the Christian life. And the reality is, is that we are not just told with empty exhortations on how to live the Christian life, but Paul says, Jesus is your life. He's in you. He's, he's living in you and through you. So it's His strength in you. It's His joy in you. It's His power in you. You can't live this life in your own strength. You weren't created to. You were created to be dependent upon Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul says, Christ who is our life. He is to be our life. He says, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. If Christ is your life and you are seeking the things above, then your faith will come to full fruition as you inherit the very thing that your hearts and minds were after, which is to be forever in the presence of God. If you are a Christian, your heart and your mind should desire greatly to be forever in the presence of God. That's why we're here. We come here this morning. We come here on Sundays. We gather in life groups and on Wednesday nights and different Bible studies throughout the week because we should have all things in common. And those all things are to be with Jesus forever. That's what we want. And therefore, this is Paul's very purpose in writing. Believers, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. That's what he says in Colossians 2.6. As you have received Him, so walk in Him. And because of verses 9-15, through 15, you are able to. Because of His past work and His current work in our lives today. So then, let's break this text down. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13-15. through 15. The Apostle Paul writes, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Who is this true of? The Gentiles. Paul, right away in verse 13, is addressing specifically the Gentiles. Which in the latter half of the verse, he's going to include the Jews as well. But right now, this is for the Gentiles, he says. When you, Gentiles, were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Why? Because as, Ma as Pastor Mark, I was going to say Master Mark, as Pastor Mark preached in the text last week, I'm sure he'd appreciate that. He has his master's degree. So the joke is that you can call him Master Mark. Because as Pastor Mark preached in the text last week, this group of Christians in Colossae is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And prior to the ascension of Jesus, in order for Gentiles to be saved, they would have had to have been proselytized. Meaning that in order for a Gentile to inherit salvation, they would have had to have become a Jew. They would have, that would have included um, coming under the law of Moses, submitting themselves to, to, the, to the law of the land, 
um, including a late-in-life circumcision for the men. So any form of Christianity prior to the ascension of Christ would have included obedience to the law. And so in order to be saved, Gentiles could always be saved, but in order for them to be saved, they had to be a Jew. They had to become a partaker in Judaism. And so any form of Christianity, this is important for us to recognize because being 2,000 years removed from this, it's easy for us to just be like, yeah, duh, I get it, of course, like what's so hard to understand? But this was a major, major turn of events for, for the Jews and the Gentiles both because prior to this, no longer being bound by the law would have flown counter to everything that the Jews believed and were raised in and everything that the Gentiles heard growing up. If the Gentiles wanted to be saved, if they wanted to be a worshiper of Yahweh, then they would have had to have become a Jew and submit themselves to the Old Covenant. So we must wrap our minds around this concept that the law is fulfilled in Christ and that the Old Covenant is now obsolete as there is a new and better covenant in Christ. Again, 2022, it's easy for us to think, well, yeah, duh, we've never followed the Mosaic Law. But keep in mind, like imagine this, and I, I, don't, I hesitate using this example because it's, it's impossible, like it can't happen. But imagine, imagine for yourself like today, Christ came back and reigned and then made a new covenant with his people. And everything that you thought and believed was, was this form of Christianity is now, is now different. Like there's, there's a new covenant that we are to abide by. Like, it would confuse us, and we would have a hard time wrestling with it, and we would be like, I, I don't understand. And so that's kind of the position that the Jews and Gentiles both are in. Now keep in mind, faith or salvation was always by faith alone. It was always by faith alone. We take Rahab. Take Rahab in the Old Testament. She was a Gentile woman in the land of Jericho. Her faith is what saved her. She heard, she says in, in Joshua chapter 1, when, when they go into the land, Rahab says, oh, we have heard about your God, how he plundered the Egyptians and what he has done. And so by faith, Rahab and her family protect the spies and entrust themselves to the Jews. But the proof of her faith was the fact that they came under Judaism. They would have had to have abided by the Mosaic law just like the Jews did. And so now what we're seeing is, oh, Jews and Gentiles both can be saved and no one is bound by the law. Thus, any Gentile that remained as a Gentile prior to Christ was condemned. So when Paul says here in verse 13 that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he was referring to just how far off from God the Gentiles really were. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, he says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Gentiles being the uncircumcision, the Jews being the circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So then, the Jews, although dead in sin, seemingly had the advantage over the Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying. You Gentiles were excluded completely. You were strangers of the covenant of promise. You were foreigners in the land. You were excluded from the commonwealth and the blessings that Israel got just for being Israelites. And he says they were without hope in the land. So the Jews had the advantage. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 2 even says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And Paul says, great in every aspect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. God communicated only with the Israelites. He gave them the oracles and the law and the covenant was made with the Israelites. The Gentiles were far off and they were separate. John MacArthur writes, Gentiles were uncircumcised, which meant that they were outside the covenant and did not have the truth of God. The Jew might have been dead in sin, but at least he was in an environment where the covenant of God was operative because God's covenant was with the Jews as a people group. 
Like the Jews, keep in mind, the, the blessing, the promises, the covenant was made with this people. And so if you were a part of this people group, whether or not you had saving faith in Yahweh, you, if you were a part of this group of people, you were by nature blessed. Your land was fertile, you had several children, you were probably wealthy. If the kings at the time were, were godly men, then the whole nation flourished. This was not true of the Gentiles. And so MacArthur continues, a Gentile was both dead and alienated from a hope of solution. That's a sad state. It's one thing to be dead in sin, and it's doubly serious to be dead in sin and outside the covenant, outside the promise, with no hope and without God in the world, with no access to the truth, no revelation. You recognize that every single one of us in this room, I'm assuming, is a Gentile. Like these are our ancestors, eternally separate from Christ until Christ on the cross. This is incredible. But despite this advantage, this seeming advantage that the Jews had over the Gentiles of being entrusted with the oracles of God, all Jews and Gentiles alike are still dead to sin and ultimately on the same playing field. Both Jews and Gentiles are all judged condemned by the law and unable to seek God and please Him apart from Christ. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So even though the covenant was with Israel... Every single person in history outside of that covenant died. They perished. Why? Because they weren't keeping the law. That's why when Rahab and her family entrusted themselves to Yahweh and by faith were saved, the proof, the proof of their salvation is coming under the helm of the old covenant. However, only Jesus can and did perfectly obey. That's why every single person, both Jew and Gentile, is cursed, as the text says. Because no one can perfectly abide by all things written in the book of the law. Jesus did. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Meaning, are us Jews better than those Gentiles? Keep in mind, this is just eight verses after saying in verses 1 and 2 that they have the advantage. He's like, we've been trusted with the oracles of God. And in verse 9, he says, are we better than they? To which he says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There you have it. Jews and Gentiles both doomed. Which is why Paul says here in Colossians 2.13 that God has forgiven us all of our transgressions. Us and our, meaning Jews and Gentiles alike. You see that he singles out the Gentiles right away and then he puts them on the same page as the Jews. All need forgiveness. What's the implication for us? We too are in need of forgiveness. We too are dead in our trespasses and sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That is every single person, ourselves included, apart from Christ. Absolutely spiritually dead and depraved. Absolutely sprinting in our hell-bound race. setting our minds on the things of this earth, living for ourselves. You see, even the Jews who had the covenant of God, this was true of them. 
Just because they were a part of the commonwealth of Israel didn't make them saved. They needed the Spirit of God to supernaturally transform them. We today, just because we walk through the Christian motions, doesn't make us saved. We need the Spirit of God to supernaturally transform us. Paul writes about these things as being past tense, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, being like the world in every respect, following after our flesh and our lusts and our desires. Christian, if you are saved, it ought not be that way anymore. Like Paul said in Colossians 3, we got to be keep seeking the things above where Christ is. That's our commission. Seeking Christ. Setting our minds on the things above. And then we get to verse 4. But God. But God. Meaning that every single one of us in this room, while we were sprinting to hell, I mean full-blown sprinting to hell, God intervened and saved us. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. But God, rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. This is exactly what Paul says to the Gentiles in Colossians 2.13, that God made you alive together with Him. God did this. Out of love and grace for you, He did this. And to make it even more incredible, He did it even though you didn't want it. And now because He did it, you do want it. Just like Lazarus, who was physically dead and dead for days, Jesus comes to him and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus at that point in time did not have a choice whether or not to resurrect back to life. It's not like in his sorry and dead state of being said, Jesus, no, I want to stay dead. Jesus simply spoke, come forth, and Lazarus arose. That is the same for us as believers. We are dead in our spiritual state. Dead without hope in the world. Following after our lust. And Jesus supernaturally saves us. The implication is that we too have no choice to change our path but God. I mean, think about, guys, how incredible that is. Where at, whatever your journey to this point in time is, whether you were saved when you were 6 or saved when you were 30 or saved when you were 75 years old, the reality is that for all of your life, you were spending your time living like a Gentile. This tattoo that I have on my arm, 1 Peter 4, 3, it says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Meaning that we have spent much too long, much too much of our life living for ourselves and living in sin. So Peter says, it's too much, it's sufficient. Man, you've lived for yourself enough already. Live for Christ now. Whether that's at age 13 or 30 or 40 or 50, it doesn't matter. We have sinned it up enough. We have lived for ourselves enough. We have set our minds on earthly things enough. And Peter says, enough! Live for Christ. And that's what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, He made you alive. Now live for Him. And if that's the reality for us, and if we know that that's the reality for us, then we should be the most humble people on earth. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, Brothers, you ought not think too highly of yourselves. For it is God who has allotted to each a measure of faith. If you have saving faith, it is God who has given you that faith. And therefore, there is zero reason to think too highly of yourself. Instead, we should have this attitude, this attitude that Paul speaks to Titus in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. I'm sorry, it's not on the screen. Paul writes, For we also once were foolish ourselves, 
we were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our time in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Guys, when we look at the world and the destruction, if you turn on the news from either side, Republican or Democrat, you see the absolute destruction of these people's souls just being poured forth from them. Their minds are not set on Christ. They don't care. And so often we do that too. When we look at unbelievers, we look at all the different sin and the lust in the world, we look at the sorry state of this country and how we now, the country that used to be so beloved by the rest of the world, are the laughingstock of the rest of the world. And we look at it, and it should break our hearts because we too would be just like them. We too would be following after the lusts of our flesh if it wasn't for God. Which is why Paul says in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. We too were once disobedient. We too looked just as silly as the unbelievers in the world. If it wasn't for Christ supernaturally coming into our life and saving us, we'd be atheists or Mormons or Muslims or living for ourselves in any way, storing up for ourselves treasures here, living for ourselves now, thinking that this is the best it gets. But God saved us. He intervened. Jesus Christ, for the believer, has intervened. He's made us alive together with Him. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's given us a new heart. And He's put His Spirit in us. If that doesn't make you worship, then nothing will. This is Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, and then 12, 1 and 2. This is this reality that we are living in. Romans chapter 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says God is unfathomable. He is so worthy of worship. Every single thing in this life is from Him, it's through Him, and it's to Him. And for that reason alone, He is to be glorified. How unsearchable are His ways. Guys, the fact that we can be saved is incredible. We don't deserve it. we got to praise Him for it. The fact that He gave us life in the first place and breath in our lungs this morning is incredible. And we got to worship Him for it. Which is why Paul says in chapter 1, or chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, because of this reality, because of how great and amazing God is, I urge you, he says, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, guys, the implication is for us to continually out of adoration and praise for Him, to glorify Him through the laying down of our lives unto Him and the constant seeking after the renewing of our minds. Our lives, Paul says, are not our own. They're not. Our lives are not our own. This life is Christ's. Oh man, I have a buddy in Germany. His name is Elias. And his faith journey is very similar to mine. We went to Bible school for the wrong reasons. And we made a lot of enemies right away. Enemies meaning we were not popular. You've heard it before. I told you we made several girls cry. We were totally unsaved. We were living in the flesh until God supernaturally changed us. And him and I have this bind now together where we have like this David and Jonathan type relationship. Why? Because we saw Christ working in our lives at the same time, in the same way, changing us from this sinful, ugly self to these men that love and desire Jesus. And he was talking to me the other day, and he says, man, I was reading 1 Corinthians 10, and I was blown away. It's so easy for me to just live for myself, and just to, to set my mind on this world, and how I interact with people. 
And we all the time, we operate out of, I don't care if this offends you, I'm going to do it because I have the freedom in Christ to live my life like this. And he talks about this verse. Chapter 10, verse 23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And he said, Christian, I'm reading this verse and I'm thinking, man, how often do I seek my own good? At the expense of my neighbor, I seek my good. I'm trying to get my own. Even as a Christian, I so often live for myself. And he says, yet it ought not be that way. He says, continue reading. Look at 31 through 33. He says, whatever then you do, whatever you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. And Paul says, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Elias said, man, we so often have a negative view of people pleasing. Now, people pleasing, when we people please out of our insecurities and we, we do it because we just want people to like us, that is absolutely sinful. But there is a biblical Christ-like way in, in that we are to people please. Meaning that we are to continually love and sacrificially lay down ourselves for the sake of others. All things for the sake of all men. That's what Paul's saying here. I give of myself faithfully and fully and abundantly and I become all things for the sake of all people. Why, Paul says, so that they may be saved. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And in chapter 9, verse 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now hear this, 19 through 23. For though I am free, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. We hear the verbiage and the weight of what Paul is saying. He says, my life is not my own. It's Christ's. And he tells me how to live. And he tells me how to live for other people. That I am not to live for myself. But I am going to lay down myself. The freedom. Guys, the freedom that we have in Christ. If we're a, if we're a believer, we have freedom in Christ to conduct ourselves in, in ways that aren't against God's code. But he says, just because you have the freedom doesn't make it edifying to the body. Just because you have the freedom doesn't make it permissible. Guys, we are to live our lives for the sake of others. And this is what Elias was so convicted of. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14-17. Don't look at it. Listen. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Amen. Guys, if your life is hidden in Christ, then your life is for the sake of one another. You can look around this room. Your life is for one another. Your life is for Christ first and one another second. It's not Christ, then you, then others. It's Christ, then others, then you. Your life is for one another. Paul says we are to be all things for the sake of all people so that we may win some, so that we can look at one another and be encouraged in the gospel of Jesus Christ that just as Jesus gave his life for us, we give our lives sacrificially for one another. Paul's life of constant laying down his life sacrificially, being all things for the sake of all men, doing all things for the sake of the gospel, is a picture of the gospel to every single person that he ministered to. When we minister to one another, when we love to one another, it should be a picture of Christ's supernatural love for us. Let us love like that. And if the love of Christ is in us, then the love of Christ should control us, as Paul says.
Man, I was so encouraged by Elias pointing that out to me because it's so easy for me, too, to live for myself. It's our disposition. It's our natural sinful habit to live for ourselves, to go out and get ours. But that's not why we're here. The next reality outlined in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 is this in, chapter four, in verse 14. Is that Christ canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. You see the Greek word for certificate of debt is literally translated handwriting or autograph and can be understood as an IOU which is a note referring to a debt of someone. In other words, Paul is saying that both Jews and Gentiles alike have an IOU to God. And the IOU is the law because in order to be a part of the covenant with God, you had to submit yourself to His law. Their inability to live perfectly under the law deemed them worthy of death, like we covered earlier. And thus they, like us, are unable to make payment on our I-O-U. However, the Greek word here for canceled actually means to wipe away. And therefore, when Paul says that God canceled the debt, it's as if the debt was written on a dry erase board and his son through his death in which he became a curse and died for us and bore the wrath of God for us, wiped away our debt to which there is no reversal. So this morning, I'm going to do something that I've never done in a sermon. But you see this right here. Can everybody read this? It says, I owe you perfect obedience to the law. Failure to pay will result in eternal death. Every single one of us has this IOU to God. Every Jew, every Gentile, every single one of us has this. This IOU to God. And what Paul says here in verse 14 is that he has taken this certificate of debt and he's taken this spray, this expo spray for this dry erase board and taken this cloth and wiped it away. Not an eraser so that there's still the, the outline of it that you could come up here and read on the board and think that you, you could see what it's once said, but that this thing is perfectly clean, perfectly clean washed away, a perfectly good slate, clean, cleansed by the righteousness of Christ. You see, this is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross when we place our faith in Him. He's taken the debt that was unable to be wiped away by any other thing, and He took it using Jesus' own blood, and He wiped it away, clean as that's the reality for us. We didn't deserve it. Jesus himself was the only one that perfectly made that payment to God. And Jesus himself could have made that payment to God and not offered it to us. But Jesus said, no, I want my blood to be shed for my people, for my bride, for my church. And so he takes his blood and he gives it to the Father and he says, here, wipe out their IOUs with this blood. We didn't deserve it. But now that we have it, there's no reversal. And for Jesus not only bore the punishment that we deserved, and in so doing took away our punishment, punishment, but he nailed the law to the cross. Hear me again. Jesus in his death not only died for our sins, but he also nailed the law to the cross, making it fulfilled and now obsolete. You see in verse 14, he says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus didn't just nail our sins to the cross. He didn't just nail our sins to the cross. He nailed the law to the cross. We no longer are under the Mosaic law because he nailed it to the cross. It is done and gone away. This is why Jews and Gentiles alike no longer have to follow the law. This is why you are not under the Mosaic law. If he just nailed your sins to the cross, we'd still be under the law. But he didn't. Paul says he took that law that bound us 
and condemned us and he nailed it to the cross in his death. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, verses 2, 4, and 6, Paul uses marriage as an example to show us that we are no longer bound by law. He writes, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. You see, just as in marriage, the only way you are free to remarry is if your spouse dies, the same is true in God's covenant with us. If Jesus didn't take the law and nail it to the cross and put it to death, then we would still be bound by it. This is why when you are married, you are bound to your spouse until they die. That's the point. If there was any other way, if you could no longer be bound to your spouse apart from the death of the spouse, then we, the implication would be that we are still bound to the law. That's Paul's argument in Romans 7. He says, guys, the only way to not be bound to your spouse is if they die. It doesn't matter. You can get a divorce. You can put them away. You can live separately. It's irrelevant because you're still bound to them in covenant with them. The only way, he says, is through death. And the implication is that here in which we're reading. The law has been put to death in Christ on the cross. If it hadn't been put to death, if Jesus just simply made a new covenant without putting the old covenant to death, we would still be bound by it. But we're not. Because he nailed it to the cross. With Christ's sinless life and perfect obedience to the law and his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection and his glorious ascension, he has freed us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of the law. That's part of the reason why Paul is addressing this truth in the gospel right now in his letter to the Colossians. Because of all the false teaching in the land, some of which says you still must obey the law. However, that isn't true. We are no longer bound by the law. However, just because we're no longer bound by the law does not give us the freedom and the excuse to fall into the other ditch, the one that runs from all sorts of obedience to Christ and rests in the grace that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. That would be an abuse of grace and not following the orders of the new covenant that has been made. Paul writes in Romans 6, he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. In other words, as Pastor Mark said last week, we are always enslaved to someone or something. As unbelievers, we are enslaved to self, to sin, and to the law. As believers, we are enslaved to Christ and His righteousness. And just as we clearly live out our slavery in our unbelieving state, we need to live out our slavery unto God so that we can be sanctified. And finally, how is all of this possible? How is it that we can die to sin and die to the law? How is it that Jesus can now live in us, as verse 13 says? And how can we be made alive in him? How is it that we can be forgiven? The answer to all of these is found in verse 15, which says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The rulers and the authorities that he is talking about right here are Satan and his minions, Satan and his demons. Jesus Christ disarmed Satan and his minions through the cross and triumphed over them through his resurrection. How? 
Because if we remember all the way back to the first promise of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God curses the enemy, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see, when Jesus died, Satan and his army thought they won. They struck Jesus on the heel. They did it. They killed the Messiah. There's no hope for anyone. However, in Jesus' resurrection, he crushed Satan's head. The enemy no longer has any power over God's children. He will try and condemn us before the Father on the last day, but what he will find is that God will condemn him and clothe us with Christ's righteousness. You see, in Zechariah chapter 3, we get a beautiful picture of this. This is a vision of Joshua the high priest. And he stands before the Lord. And Satan is there to convict him. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. Satan, indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with feastal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you also will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access from, from among those who are standing here. You see, from Satan's perspective, every single one of us should be thrown into hell. And he's right. Joshua the high priest should have been condemned to hell. God should have looked at Joshua with Satan standing there and Satan says, send him to hell, God. An unworthy sinner. And God should have said, yep, you're right. See ya, Joshua. See ya, Christian. You're gone. Get away from me. You don't have the right garments on. You're unworthy. You're unrighteous. And he would have been right in doing so. However, by the mercy and grace of God, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and pledge to live for Him and to walk in His ways, He clothes His children in Christ's robes of righteousness so that we can exist with Him forever. The only reason Joshua was able to enter into eternity is because God took away His sinful garments and He put on Christ's clean and white, righteous, feastal robes. Satan is defeated. The end is written. He loses. And we in Christ are victorious. Look at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55-57. through 57, And see the gravity of this truth. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death and sin and the law and Satan no longer have any dominion over us. Christ has disarmed them, having nailed them to the cross, triumphing over them through his glorious resurrection. And because Jesus has resurrected, so we too can be sure that we will also resurrect after this earthly life and live forever with him in perfect harmony. However, the resurrection doesn't just accomplish heaven for us. It also accomplishes life starting now. As our resurrection to new life really starts at our regeneration, we are born again, fully forgiven, given a new heart, and His Spirit put within us. Now every single thing that we face as believers, as children of God, every single thing that we face in life is a mercy from God. Every single thing that we face in this life is for our very good. 
And it is for our refining so that we can be more like Christ. God is in complete control and every minute detail of your life is being orchestrated by Him to grow you in Christ-likeness. It's all mercy. Every trial, every blessing, it's all mercy. Every single thing. Satan is defeated. He doesn't have power over your life any longer. You're not bound by sin. You're not bound by the law. You are bound to Christ. And in Christ, He has chosen to do all things for our good to conform us into His likeness. Christians, Paul is reminding you here in verses 13 through 15 that in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, you are made alive, and you are free. And because of this, you are to walk and live in this reality. The Gospel is Christ in you, your hope of glory. You have the fullness of Him in you just as the fullness of deity dwelt in Him. Rest in that. Make Christ your joy. Make Christ your peace. Make Christ your rest. Make Christ your identity. And focus on Him as you keep seeking Him. Run to Him, Christians, and find rest for your souls. Jesus Christ loves you endlessly. It's why he did what he did on the cross and that's why he does what he does in you now. For he lives in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your son. Lord, for not only the work that he accomplished on the cross, but Lord, if it was only the work on the cross and nothing more, we'd still all be condemned to hell. Lord, it is his work that made it possible for us now to be alive in Christ. Lord, to be forgiven. Lord, thank you for sending your Son to die and to live again and now to live in us, to call us his home, to abide in every single one of his children. Lord, thank you for not leaving it up to us to live the Christian life in our own strength and in our own power. Lord, thank you for not making this life just full of misery and sorrow as we trudge through this hopeless existence, but Lord, you have given us certainty in the hope where we get to live forever with you. And not only the promise of eternal life then, but Lord, the fact that you've given us life now, life abundantly in Christ. Lord, I pray that every single one of us in this room understands that truth more, that Lord, we would walk in you, truly walk in you. Lord, that no matter what's going on in our lives, no, no, longer, no matter what trial or tribulation or hardship, no matter what grief or sorrow, what pain or sickness, Lord, that we would have joy in you. Joy in who you are, Lord, that we would have peace in you, rest in you. For Lord, you have given all of those things to us in your Son now. This isn't just for eternity, it's for now. Lord, cause every single one of us in this room to entrust ourselves to you more, to desire you more, to seek you first. Lord, to set our minds upon heavenly things and not on earthly things. To live for you, Lord, by the power of you, for the glory of you. Lord, create in us a greater longing and a greater thirst for you. For your righteousness and for your word. And Lord, do as your word promises. To complete the work in us that you have so faithfully promised you would do. To the day of Christ Jesus' return. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.